Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. For today's podcast, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the energy transition. Now, this is a podcast I've been looking forward to doing ever since Jonathan presented at the UK Investor Magazine Virtual Investment Trust Conference uh, a few weeks ago. So we're going to be looking at the Triple Point Energy Transition Trust. And to do that, we're very kindly joined by the fund manager, Jonathan Hick. Jonathan, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. We actually did uh, a, a podcast. It was actually a snippet, Jonathan, of the Q and A uh, session from the uh, from the recent uh, conference. So regulators will be familiar with that. But we, we're going to be delving in because there's been a lot happening since in just the few weeks that we uh, had the the conference here. So for people that aren't familiar, Jonathan, before we get started, could you just give us a, a brief introduction? to the Triple Point Energy Transition Trust, please. No problem. So so Triple Point Energy Transition, or TENT, PLC, to keep it brief for the rest of the podcast, um, was, was set up to help and support the, the transition to net zero in the UK principally, and we've recently expanded the mandate to Europe. And we do that through investing across the whole spectrum of the energy infrastructure system to deliver that change. And really that means that we focus on three main areas. The first area we focus on is, is transforming the power generation, you know, the supply of energy. And we think that means, means moving towards decentralized renewable generation away from centralized fossil fuels, such as you know, large coal plants. The second part of what we're all about is in making sure that power is available when people need it. Last year, enough energy was wasted from wind energy alone to power one million homes in the UK. And at the time of high fuel poverty and energy scarcity, that's really not acceptable. So we need a more flexible and dynamic system. And that is what battery storage and flexible transmission networks able you to, um, to provide. And so that's the second area that we focus on alongside the renewable generation. And the third is actually going all the way to the other end of the economic spectrum. It's the demand side of the equation. And really what we're trying to do there is reduce the absolute level of demand that might be more through efficient lighting led lights and so forth or through actually generating the power requirement on site for example say rooftop solar or combined heat and power so that whole spectrum approach from supply right through to transmission to the, and onwardly to demand is the kind of whole what we call our holistic approach and we think you need a holistic approach to decarbonize every facet of the uk energy infrastructure in order to get to net zero Fantastic. Thank you. So we're going to be discussing, well, first of all, we're going to start off looking at the regulatory environment, mm. Jonathan, then we're going to move on and look at some of the the assets. So, I mean, there's been a, a lot happening in the last month, of course, with the uh, the autumn statement and, and new measures coming in uh, from Jeremy Hunt. We're going to be discussing those. But let, let's start because, you know, I think this is particularly topical given that we're moving into to winter. There's been huge disruption in, in energy markets so far this year. But there, there is a review coming up, a review of electricity market arrangements. Mm-hmm. So now for people that aren't familiar, Jonathan, would you be able to, to to give a brief overview of that, please? 
and then you know what that means for for, for tent and you know, generation assets that, that you may have in the portfolio and you know what that means for the, for the revenue from these assets going forwards sure yeah really, really topical one in energy in energy markets so the review of energy market arrangements or rema um was a consultation the government kicked off earlier this year which i think concluded end of october and this was focused on how can we redesign and restructure this energy market to help accelerate to net zero. And it's the largest potential reform for many, many decades in this space. I think the first thing to say is that no one really knows how this is going to pan out. It's going to take a number of years um, to develop the kind of base legislation and to actually implement it could take as much as four or five years. So this isn't a immediate risk, I don't think, or opportunity that's going to crystallize you know, next year. But there are some clear threads and directions of travel. So the first is the government is seemingly really focused on geographic based pricing. So this could be um, locational pricing. So, for example, Scotland and the north of England and the south of England, or it could be what's called nodal pricing, which is even more focused on a specific part of the grid network. And so this would effectively have three different markets with three different prices in the kind of um, the, the regional one that I give the example of. And this would mean um, some quite differences to the business models um, for generation assets in those in those areas, um, because it's obviously your energy price is driven by supply and demand, but within that geographic area. So if we take uh, onshore wind or offshore wind as an example, a lot of that's obviously based off in Scotland or off the coast of Scotland. But most of what is happening at the moment is that power is, is transported through transmission cables are quite significant cost to build out that infrastructure down to the south of England. And actually what will be happening here is the price for that generation in say you know the north of Scotland would be based on the demand in Scotland, and so you can see a scenario, for example, where you know prices fall in that scenario, um, and with the really good assets being the ones closest to centres of demand. So that's just one potential example. The other one that we see, see sorry, being talked about, is decoupling the gas price from the renewable energy price, and I think this has got a lot of merit in some ways because you know we always talk about you know, renewable power being cheaper, being um, more cost effective um, for, the, for the UK economy. But actually, no one really sees the benefit of that at the moment, because the price is set by gas. It's just what's called short run, short run marginal cost. It's set by the most expensive technology, and that is currently gas. So we need to get renewables, you know, bringing down the average price. We think that's a good thing um, for consumers. Um, and, 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 and so I think what you'll see there is some form of decoupling but it's not, you know, it's quite complex to do. So that's just some of the flavor of what REMA is trying to do, but fundamentally it's trying to accelerate the transition to net zero um, through improving the market arrangements, which was sort of set up for a previous more fossil fuel world. Um, in terms of your point, does it have the potential to reduce revenues from power generation? It does, but it also has the potential to increase it because I think there will be, as I kind of alluded to there, winners and losers. You know, those of those of us with power assets down in the southeast, which are centers, close to centers of demand, we're currently um, building out a battery storage asset, for example, in Gerrard's Cross. That that sort of asset is is quite well placed, I think. You know, for me personally, some of the, would I want to be constructing onshore wind, you know, well up in the sort of um, more remote parts of Scotland right now, given this uncertainty, is certainly not something that we're looking to do right now. So I, I think as investors, you can need to approach this uncertainty. Um, with, with acknowledging you're not going to have the clarity you want, but, but acknowledging there probably are going to be winners and losers and, and reflecting that in your decision-making process. Um, from a TENT perspective, um, and I think this is probably quite an important point to explain about TENT, is we deliberately have a diverse um, asset base across the three segments that I explained earlier. So what that means is, yes, a third of what we do is in generation, but a third is in that storage, that flexibility piece. 
And the third is actually on the on-site piece. And so when these kind of regulatory um, challenges come along, I think for us, it only impacts a small part of our trust. And I think that's really important in a world of increasing complexity, increasing regulation, to be able to sort of protect our investors from some of these you know, risks where there's high levels of uncertainty. So, so I hope that answers your question on Rima, but it's certainly something that's really, really topical and quite impactful for investment making decisions right now. Indeed, indeed. Thank you. So let's move on now, Jonathan, because of course, one of the measures that Jeremy Hunt put in the, the autumn statement was a 45% levy uh, above £75 per, per megawatt hour. Um, I mean, what, what's, what's your view on that? Because you, you, you're at the... You know, the forefront of this industry. I mean, your sort of view on, you know, the implications for mm. uh, your assets, you know, the wider industry. And, and do you think it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt investment into the sector at all? I think, it, I think, unfortunately, that is a risk on that latter point. So I guess it's just, you know, rehearse the journey we've sort of been on if you've we've, if we've been reading the press in this sector. So first of all, there was this talk of this, um, certainly the trust government, a, a revenue price cap. And Europe has introduced this policy where it's, they cap it at 180 euros. And the view was that there'd be something similar, albeit potentially slightly, at a slightly lower level, in the UK. And then obviously with a change of government, and even though they passed, um, I think it was the electricity prices bill that, would make, that gives the Secretary of State the ability to implement a revenue cap, actually what has been actually put into policy or is being put into policy as of the announcement on the 17th of November is this what's called a win what's being referred to sorry as a windfall tax but it's an excess profits levy or electricity generation levy I think the technical name is where you're taxing at sort of as you say 45% above 75 pounds per megawatt hour I think so a couple of nuances there are sort of de minimis levels of you know revenues up to 10 million pounds and excludes uh, renewable subsidy payments, which make up quite a lot of a generator's income. So, you know, it's not on all revenues. Um, so so there, there is a little bit of nuance, which makes it um, not quite so bad as maybe the headlines suggests. But there are, I think, two troubling aspects. First of all, 75 is quite low. And particularly when you consider, compare it to Europe, where it's 180 on the, on the sort of on the revenues, I think that's that is quite a differential. And the second point is it doesn't, unlike the oil and gas version of the same windfall tax, have um, ability to mitigate the tax bill through reinvestment. And so what both of those things will do is, yes, potentially encourage people to put that capital to work in Europe, um, where, you know, it's not capped, it's capped at a much higher level, and, and certainly for larger generators. Um, and I think the second point is, yeah, clearly it's, it's you know, having that investment reincentive, um, investment, uh, reinvestment incentive, sorry, would be would have been a more positive thing. And I think if you want to encourage a more renewable energy system and a shift away from fossil fuels, that would have been a sensible thing to do. But what I have seen is that, you know, certainly for us, we, we're not forecasting any impact on our revenues of this because we've got a diversified portfolio. And even, you know, very large dedicated generators are sort of seeing, I think, up to three or 4% impact. So it's not ideal. But, you know, in terms of, to your point, what's it going to do for the future? Yes, I think it does make the UK slightly less attractive as an investment location for uh, energy, uh, renewable energy investment. So, you know, around that announcement to, uh, in, in the autumn statement, Jonathan, we, we did see some of the electricity companies, their shares rally. So, you know, that suggests that there was you know, some good news to be taken away or, or maybe maybe news that was less bad than, than first yeah. feared. I mean... Th- do you have did you hold assets within the portfolio that that benefit from that? Of course, you know within that there was a change to the 
um, to the price cap. There was, there was a movement there, so that might have been some benefits. But, you know, sort of overall sort of looking at that, um, you know, are there assets that you hold in the portfolio that will benefit from from the changes that we saw a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, well, I think the kind of uplift that people were seeing in the market was more, and you often see this with the market, don't you, sort of uh, the uncertainty being removed, you know, because I think prior to this being announced, there was talk of the, as I was saying, price caps, revenue price caps, tax, windfall taxes, all sorts of different policy mechanisms. And so I think, you know, generators were being, you know, listed generators were being materially impacted by that. And so I think the share price uplift was was very much reflecting of the fact that we've got certainty and we can now reflect that in our in our cash flow valuations. Um, you know, the NAV, the underlying value still went down for some of them by 3%, but I think investors were just pleased to have certainty. That's my take on it, certainly. In terms of the impact on us, um, you know, so there were certain scenarios under the revenue cap where we would have been impacted and, and, and seen a reduction in our net asset value. Um, we were pleased that when the final policy got announced, that wasn't the case. So it's, it's I guess, positive for us relative to what we've been led to expect in the market. Ultimately, really for us, it's no change. It's business as usual, you know, as a, you know, in terms of what we were expecting a year ago and what we had in our cash flow forecasts. So, so yes, having a certificate was positive. Having the actual reality not impact us was also positive. Um, and, and I think that just speaks to the sort of the importance of that diversified portfolio. Fantastic. So a couple more points uh, I've got here, Jonathan, around the regulatory side of things, because just going back to, to the levy, they've actually set a date of 2028 mm. uh, as, as an end. Now, th- this is this, this goes back to uh, a very interesting point that you made uh, in the Q&A session of the Investment Trust Conference, where you were talking about the ability for renewable energy to be connected to the grid. And uh, you, you mentioned that some of the dates for, for projects to be to be connected were, were being pushed back or you know unavailable you know in some circumstances way past 2028 do you, I mean do you think that this date of 2028 that the government sets is them doing it you know really knowing that even you know in the meantime if it does dent investment or uh, you know the propensity for people to invest in renewable energy it wouldn't really matter anyway because you're not going to be able to bring some of these power generation assets online before then? Um, it's, a, it's a really good question. I think I would love to think that the government is sort of a very sort of, um, as I would say, you know, uh, everyone's talking to everyone within the government and everyone recognises these challenges around connection dates. I'll be totally honest, I, I suspect that they they probably weren't aware or sorry, are not as aware as I would like them to be or others would like them to be around the sort of the grid connection point. Um, I suspect what it actually is, when you look at the gas forecasts, you do see them start to taper off in, you know, depending on which ones you look at, three to four years time, some of them a little before and some of them a little after. So I think probably what the government's doing is aligning it to a period where it's forecasting elevated prices. And I think it's more driven by the price signals it's seeing in the market rather than a sort of understanding of the grid connections, um, which is very sort of, I guess it is outside the government to a large extent. It's, it's driven by national grid electricity system operator and DNOs, this distribution network operators. So it, it's probably less in their field. Um, and I would suggest it's mostly driven by expectations around price. But, you know, to your point, in reality, yes, the amount of renewables we want to build is being constrained by um, grid connections. And so that does mean fewer assets will be impacted. Um, albeit, I think there are provisions, you know, certainly with the um, electricity prices um, regulation that was brought in. For the government to potentially bring this back and you know um, and 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 set a price cap in the future, so I still think there will be this uncertainty 
going forward in the sector, and that will be priced into cost of capital. Thank you. So, just one last question here on the regulatory yeah. side of things, Jonathan. Then we're going to we're going to move on to to really drill down into the portfolio. Mm-hmm. So, you know, of course, the measures we've just been discussing there, you know, really been a, a reaction to geopolitics that we've seen in in, in Europe. Of course, uh, you know, the tragedy that's unfolding in in Ukraine has had a follow on uh, effect on uh, on the energy markets. Now, th- it feels like a, a lot of what the government's done has been a response to this. Now, if we see a situation where you know that the, the war ends and and we start to see energy markets move back to a sort of market that we saw last year and maybe starting to see energy prices fall do you think some of these measures that the governments have put in place will will, will quickly be reversed because they they're not needed anymore yeah, well, if we just, okay, just look at the two big ones we've spoken about in this conversation. So we take REMA. That REMA is a long-term thing. We talked about it taking, you know, some years to bring to fruition. And I think it's absolutely right to look at a market that's not really changed fundamentally for decades and seek to make the right changes. And I think doing a proper deep dive of what, what is a very complex market, taking the time to get it right, is something that is a long-term thing. And, you know, I, I support that. I think that will carry on regardless. I think there was always a slight risk that the government would almost jump the gun on REMA and seek to make policy announcements before that deep dive analysis has been done. For example, decoupling the gas price. That was a sort of rumoured solution at one point. So I think those long-term things will carry on. I think that's right. I think in terms of the windfall tax, if we can call it that, yes, I do think that certainly between now and 2028, power prices are unlikely to stay at the current levels of elevation and the amount of tax that the government expects to recoup from that measure will be probably not as much as they were hoping. As a function of, you know, um, you know, to your point around falling prices, less less money being taxed. So I think I, I'm not sure they'll get rid of the policy, but I think it ceases to become less relevant in that lower price environment. And you know, is there a scenario where I think a new government comes in and sort of says, actually, we don't think taxing renewables is the right way to go, or taxing them more harshly than oil and gas is the way to go? We actually want to really incentivize this stuff. Yeah, I think I, I think I can see that. I think that probably requires government change, but I can see that being the case in the future. But in the absence of that, then yes, I think these measures become less relevant just in of themselves <laughs> by, the, by the, sort of the way they're structured. Indeed, indeed. Right, Jonathan, let's now get into the portfolio. So we're going to take, take uh, sort of a, the top-down approach to, to start with, and then we're going to look at some of the, portfo- um, the, the assets within the portfolio. So you mentioned that at the beginning that you have a holistic approach to investing in green energy now and obviously the energy transition i mean do, do you see this approach changing as as the market developments you know of course at the moment you, you're looking at the market as a whole and you know looking at infrastructure and generation and you know do you see your portfolio maybe shifting towards a particular area of, of the market going forward I think it's more important than ever for us to almost double down on a holistic approach. And I think some of the factors we've been speaking about allude to why. You know, we have been un- unimpacted by this generation levied at the windfall tax, whereas others have. And that's because others are really focused just on the generation piece, that first of the three buckets I spoke about at the start. But by having a spread portfolio across both storage, generation and on the demand side, you are better able to insulate your investors and your return and your, you know, your, your asset values um, from that sort of regulatory change. And I think it's when you invest in infrastructure assets, you know, we're investing in a battery asset or solar plant, that is 25, 30, 40 years, and it's stuck in the ground and you can't really move it. So, you know, you do need, you know, 
you are reliant to an extent on regulatory stability and a policy stability. But but I think to, you know you want you can mitigate some of that by having a diversification of the asset base in different parts of the market. And we've got a portfolio of say um, LED lights which are in a large logistics warehouse. They're not going to be impacted by REMA or by you know um, windfall taxes. And so I think the holistic approach is how in an uncertain market with high levels of regulatory risk or increasing levels of regulatory risk, I should say, um, that diversification is, is really important. So I think it's an approach we'll continue with. Um, there will be you know, parts you know, of the energy sector within our three segments that are more interesting than others, and there'll be specific opportunities in certain technologies. Um, hydrogen, carbon capture, there's lots of really interesting new business models coming along. But I think having a broad diversification is critical in the, in the world we're kind of moving into in the energy market. So, Jonathan, let's now. You've obviously been discussing about you know the strategy there and you know where you're investing. Let's, if we may, look at some of your 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 assets. If you're able to to go through and give some examples, mm. I know you mentioned when they about the LED lighting, but yeah, if, if you've got any uh, you know examples to give listeners, you know, a bit more perspective of the type of assets that you hold within the portfolio. Sure. So we own a portfolio of hydroelectric run of river plants uh, up in Scotland. Um, near Fort Augustus and uh, near Fort William. And those assets are sort of have probably useful lives of about 45, 50 years. They take water from um, from rivers and basically use that to power a turbine which generates electricity um, up in very stunning parts of Scotland, I must say. So so that we've got feed-in tariff subsidies, um, which provide a minimum floor price on the energy that we sell and the generation incentive. And so these are very, very cash generative assets with strong performance track records, five to six years of operational history. And, you know, we can see those generating for many, many decades to come and, and providing low carbon power um, for, for many years. So so those are really interesting. I find those interesting because so much of the investment that goes into renewables is principally in wind, which is great, uh, and solar. I think what we're really trying to do is to champion those, let's call them unsung hero technologies, the lesser financed ones that have a crucial role to play but also, you know, um, perhaps get overlooked by by other investors. And so we think that's positive from an environmental perspective, but we also think there's a positive returns perspective because you've got less people chasing the same type of asset. So that's hydro. We also put an investment in a energy storage, battery energy storage portfolio uh, of four batteries located across Wales, England and Scotland, which are providing flexibility of the sort that I spoke about before, um, demand response, inertia response, etc. And again, it's that holistic approach to having, okay, you've got generation assets, but you need the flexibility for when you know, the water doesn't run or the wind doesn't blow. And again, we're really excited about those. I think battery storage as an asset class is very, very exciting. Um, you know, the UK is an island. We can't easily get power from other countries. And so being able to store the energy we have on the island is really important. So that's probably the second one that I'd highlight. I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this, uh, Jonathan, but do you, do you have any personal favourites within the portfolio? Uh, um, yeah, well, well um, uh, yeah, I think there's a, there's a, I think there's a particular favourite I have, which is a, a battery storage asset that we're, we're, we're building up in Scotland. Um, 50 megawatt, two hour duration battery. It's quite, quite a large battery. And it's located about, I don't know, 10 minutes away from one of our hydro sites, actually. And I, why it's my favourite is because I think you can see the impact of having that battery on the system and what it will do for the hydro asset in terms of reducing curtailment. I spoke briefly earlier about sort of when there's too much renewable generation on the network, the generators get switched off, get curtailed and paid to, to not generate. And obviously, it, and, and the hydro assets that we acquired, um, you know, has been subject to curtailment in the past. 
So having a factory in that part of the network actually relieves the congestion, relieves that curtailment risk. Um, and I think it's really positive. So, so that's probably, if you like, my favourite asset. I think storage, as I said, is really, really interesting, really exciting. The UK is at the forefront of that particular market. And I think we're really pleased to be back in those kind of assets that have real synergy with the renewable portfolio that we have as well. Thank you. So to finish off now, Jonathan, just, you know, I've got to ask the question, you know, you're, you're, as we mentioned before, you know, right at the forefront of things here, you know, from what you see, is there any particular technology that, that you look at or areas of clean energy infrastructure that you feel will produce exceptional returns for investors in the long term? Yeah, I think there's, so one that I think is, you know, I mentioned battery storage and I'll, and I'll go back to that because I just think in, in given a unique focus in the UK of say wind generation, which is what will largely be going forwards, given it's an island power grid, I think batteries have a unique role to play in the UK and can and can really generate some, some strong returns. You know, ultimately your battery business case is being driven by the deployment of renewables. So there's a very sort of location, you know, UK specific based business case built off the back of growing wind generation, which means that batteries will have long-term attractive cash flows for the long term. Um, and the one I'm a bit also personally interested in, which we're just starting to see a little bit of in our pipeline now, is hydrogen electrolysis, green hydrogen being produced, which is so important for decarbonizing some of the hard to abate sectors such as steel or shipping. And I think if we can really get capital into that hydrogen space, as I know the government's keen to do, I think that will make a huge difference to decarbonizing transport and heavy industry, which are two of the problem areas as we transition to net zero. So those are the two areas I would look out for, um, which we're just starting to see through, and we'll see lots more of, I think, over the course of the next day. Fantastic, Jonathan. That's been fascinating. Thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. So just as a note to listeners, we did mention that Jonathan presented at the UK Investment Magazine Virtual Investment Trust very recently, there'll be a link in the notes to, these pod, to this podcast. Do go and check that out on the UK Investor Magazine website in the video section. and You'll get a bit more insights into the portfolio. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player. The views presented by the hosts and guests of the UK Investor Magazine podcast are in no way investment advice. And please remember, all investment involves risk.